0: to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. I, uh, in my private life, in the Confines of my happy marriage with my consenting wife Practice sadomasochism Bondage dominance uh, All the rest Masks, binds, ropes, fire Wow Uh, Even just saying it like that I can feel my shoulders loosen for the first time in decades. I am a masochist In order to achieve sexual gratification, I need to be tied up punched Pinched, whipped, kicked, or otherwise tortured by my loving wife. And here's the bigger truth. All of us need something, right? You know, I don't know what you do in your bedroom with your loved one, but I do know this. You're probably a little embarrassed about it. You probably don't want the rest of us looking at you while you do it. Unless that's your thing, and if so, great. But wouldn't we be better off if we didn't let shame?
3: This is probably a familiar voice, that of the great actor Paul Giamatti, who plays the character of Chuck Rhodes on the hit Showtime series, Billions. Chuck is, at the moment of this speech, a candidate for New York State Attorney General. Since the start of the show, he's been harboring a big secret. When I heard Chuck's speech, as an avid fan of Billions, I immediately wanted to sit down with the co-creator of Billions, Brian Koppelman for a special bonus episode. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. Secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. One of the themes that keeps emerging on this podcast is the sense that culturally and societally, We are experiencing the era of the end of secrecy. Whether it's as a result of DNA testing, or the internet, or of the Me Too movement, the explosion and revelation of secrets all around us is allowing us to begin to understand that we may trust others with our deepest fears, our most deeply held secrets. And one of the first steps in trusting others in this way is the realization that we're not alone. It turns out that Brian and I are both a little obsessed with Ralph Waldo Emerson, whose essay On Self-Reliance is one I have quoted time and again to my students. Emerson wrote, A man should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within, yet he dismisses without notice his thought because it is his. Why do we do this? Why do we dismiss our own thoughts and assume there's something weak, second class, shameful about them?
4: So, first of all, I want to say it's a great pleasure to talk to you. Um, I'll, I'll, if I use the word I in talking about this, um, the episode, the speech, the whole thing was written by... Um, My Partner and Me, um, by David and Me. And so if if I say I, uh, it's really we. It's just annoying to say we all the time because it sounds like you're saying the royal we. So, um, and and I'll say, you know, Danny, you know my wife Amy a little bit, the novelist Amy Koppelman. And and Amy is a a genius at at writing about shame and about secrets. And uh, her three novels are, are about that. And which is to say that we talk about this a lot at home. As you know, like if two writers are in a house, they're they're talking about this stuff and um, about the reasons that um, characters and people uh, allow themselves to be haunted or imprisoned by their secrets, and and when they have the key to let themselves out available to them, pretty much all the time. And so, to the speech that Chuck gave, uh, it it wouldn't be true to tell you that we knew from day one we were pointed toward that speech. That's, you know, one of the great things about a, a series that uh, runs for a long time, this sort of novelistic sense, you know, the, the, this novelistic approach to television that we're able to uh, practice is you can discover stuff as you go. But we did know that at some point we, we had hoped that Chuck could let his shoulders down as he says in the speech about this whole thing. That... Um, that it might come out, and that if it came out, it would he would find himself. If Wendy would find herself in some ways trapped by it, that Chuck would find himself in some ways freed. And um, and of course, and and, and uh, the episode that's airing this Sunday night. I don't know when this podcast goes up, but but episode seven of the show, um, Chuck tells a story about where some of this came from, in a way, um, and. Uh, you know, where, where some of this, uh, this sense of shame, he doesn't say it specifically in those words, but the astute viewer will understand that that's what he's talking about. And, um, of course, the reaction that we've gotten from that moment on the show has been just so satisfying because, yes, people loved the surprise of it and loved, as you said, like the drama of it. But more than that, I think they loved, And related to and, and, and really got a lot out of the, 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 you know, what Chuck is saying, which is, of course, don't allow these societal, as long as your behavior doesn't harm anybody, don't allow these societal constraints to stop you from being who you need to be. And in fact, if you own who you need to be, you'll find that you can flow through life a little bit easier. Uh, now, of course, you know, he is in, by making the speech hurting some people, so it's it's not um, a poly You know, unburdening yourself in that way is 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 often like there are these dangers you think are there, but you have to in real life. You better pick the right spots. You better prepare the right people, and you better make sure that you're not causing more harm.
3: Oh yeah, there's this moment. I mean, it's so layered, right? Because there's also the sense that he realizes it is tactical for him. And it is from his soul. um and and both of those come together in that moment. but i I wonder whether part of what the uh, really uh, extraordinary response to that speech has been among viewers is that, I mean, there's this moment where Chuck says to the assembled reporters and political people in in the in the room, "I'm asking if I may trust you with my deepest fear." Brian also has an awesome Twitter feed. You can find him at at Brian Koppelman, in which I've noticed over the years just how generous he is with other writers in sharing his creative process. Again, to go back to your Twitter feed, you are giving people permission constantly to be like, wait a minute, that's a scary thought. Um, maybe that means it's a valuable thought. Oh, I don't want to touch that. Uh, maybe it means I should touch that. Maybe that's where the kernel of truth lies.
4: Because we devalue, we devalue our own private insights all the time. And as a, as as people, we're we're so sort of trained. Yes, I mean, you and I are of like the free to be you and me generation in some way. But most, uh, and and you know, there was a brief moment in the late '60s, early '70s where. Individual expression was um, really people tried to really stoke that in kids, but generally, you're um, we're all trained to check with the groupthink before really giving uh, our own deepest opinion and our and saying our own deepest dreams and ideas very often. And and the more that we can learn that if in fact we don't worry about the reaction. We will find that we just feel better and sleep better. And um, and the older I get, the more I'm certain that becoming comfortable in your own skin is the answer to most personal problems. Not going to solve world problems, but um, I mean, you know, unless you extrapolate that everyone does that. But it, you know, the more you're not faking the funk, and the more you're just living in who you are, it changes all of your interactions. It enables the people who are with you to just get the sense that you're calm. Not that you're lazy or too relaxed, but that you're calm and open and available to them because you're not putting a bunch of stuff up in front of who you really are in between you and them. And so that's been a lot of what I've worked on myself for the last 15 years or so is just being the person that I am, you know, hopefully the best version of who I am. I find that when I'm not trying to put on anything, it enables me to be the most empathetic version, the most sympathetic version, and the most giving version because um, I'm just kind of like living in the present and in where I am. And I, you know, and as I've had those insights, I've tried to help other people get there to the extent that I, you know,
3: to the extent that I can. Yeah. All that is just makes so much sense to me and is also the way that I have been living my life for the last, I'm going to say 20 years or so and more and more and more so. And as a writer, I find that when I go there, like here's a, just a brief example from me, Um, there's a moment in, in my, not my most recent book, but, um, the book before a memoir called Hourglass, there's a moment where there's, I'm having a sort of tense, intense kind of exchange with my husband. Um, there's been an ice storm in Connecticut and we've, headed off in a direction to another house to to be in in a in a safe space and he's an explorer. He's a former journalist, so he likes to explore. And he starts explore, exploring the roads around us. And our kid is in the back seat in his in his car seat. And I turned to him and was like, What are you doing? What are you doing? It's like we're not supposed to be out on the roads. This is not the moment to be a journalist. And I was furious with him. And we finally got to the house and we settled in and he went back out into the ice storm to help, you know, to help people. And I I wrote this scene, and at the end of the scene, something was not entirely there. He had come back in, his cheeks were ruddy, and his eyes were bright, and he said, it's like a war zone out there. And that was the end of the scene. And then I had this thought. It was a sentence, and the sentence was, I hated him. And I thought, I can't write that. I cannot write that. And then I wrote it, and then I deleted it, and then I wrote it, and then I deleted it. And then finally, I wrote it, and I left it in. It was probably the last edit I made in my book, and I turned it in, and my editor called me a few days later after she'd had a chance to read it, and she said, my favorite sentence in the entire book was, I hated him. It was like a live wire. And also, by the way, in retrospect, a few years later, I'm talking about this with you in a podcast that millions of people are going to hear because I don't have any shame about that anymore because everybody hates their partner sometimes, but there was something about that feeling in the moment of too exposed, too vulnerable, too real, too true, not okay.
4: I mean, you think about the, the books that you've loved the most that have impacted, that have, you know, mattered to you the most, and you, it's rarely because the author was pulling punches. It's rarely because the author was worried about what their spouse or kids were going to think of them. Also, you know, write anything you want. Later, if you're really sure it's going to hurt somebody, you can always redact it. You can always edit it out. You can always find another way. But often I find people stop and they're so scared they're going to hurt people in their lives that they don't even pick up the pen, right? You're a professional writer. You're an accomplished writer. You're a famous writer. And still, you were worried about whether you could do it.
3: So let me ask you this, um, to go back to Chuck's speech, and there's also, there are these great um, cutaways from his speech where, I mean, there's one in particular where he describes, he uses the word unburdening, uh, and then we cut to his wife's face. And, um, you know, we know that this is not an unburdening for Wendy. What thoughts do you have about... um, you know, those two characters and the ways in which Chuck is released by uh, deciding that he is going to shine a light and reveal what's under all of that darkness. Um, Wendy has a very different reaction. Can you talk about that a little bit?
4: I'll talk about it a bit. Uh, I don't want to overtalk it uh, because sure. this is a work that's still going. Do you know what I mean? Sure, sure. And so I don't want to overtalk it. I would just say there. Well, their situations are different, right? Because it's actually the practice itself. Although it, uh, although it, Wendy gets stuff out of it. It's it's not primal to Wendy in the same way it is to Chuck, mm-hmm. and so for Wendy, even Wendy admitting it, she, Wendy doesn't carry it in the same way for Wendy. Uh, it's a different kind of shame or embarrassment, and I, I don't want to talk too much about it. I would just say, yes, of course, that's what I was saying before about um, when one unburdens, one ought to be aware of the consequences. To if there are direct consequences, you, you should enlist those people and talk through it and figure it out. I and mean, you may still have to do it anyway, but then know that certain relationships are going to change as a result of that.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean she is she is blindsided. Um, I guess I was asking because I'm thinking about when we love a drama, we see ourselves in in multiple characters in that drama. Right. And, and I see myself in both Chuck and Wendy. Um, there's this moment, um, where Wendy gets into the elevator after she's watched Chuck's speech on television and she's, she looks, um, mortified and uh, like she doesn't even know where to look. And, um, and there's what I read into that, and again, this is just, you know, me as a, as a, as a viewer was that there was pride there that had just been, I mean, Wendy is so put together. Um, and you know, she looks great all the time and she, she just navigates life in this way where she helps people, but she doesn't need any help. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I see pieces of myself in Wendy and I kind of connected to what I viewed as her, um, she's just been sort of stripped a little bit by this. And she doesn't want, she doesn't want to walk through life that way.
4: David and I, of course, have to be all these characters.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: As you know, right, you can't write all these characters if you can't find some piece of yourself in all these characters. Um, And so I, I also would say that, um, although we can work from a place of intellect, uh, I mostly work from a place of instinct, which is why, mm-hmm. while it's going on, I don't like to talk about it that much because I'm not actually working from the top down. I'm working from the inside out when I'm writing. And although I'm aware of plot, like building plot, when it comes to character dialogue, those little moments, I mean, the thing I love the most about the creative process is the ways in which I surprise myself when I'm doing what I do. And, you know, I'm sitting on my couch, I've got my headphones on, I'm blasting music, and I'm in this other realm. I'm sort of, you know, when it's at its best, such as when um, we're writing that speech and the reactions, you know, you're in that strange place, Danny, where you're hyper-present, but also sort of barely tethered to the earth. And that's where I hope to be when I'm writing, particularly when I'm writing the scenes, right? So there's there's the outlining and the sort of structural piece, but then the writing of the scenes in it, um, and the discovery that, that you were talking about, for me, that has to happen from the subconscious and from the gut. And it's like all the stuff that you've ever learned in your life somehow is suddenly, the stuff you didn't even know you knew is suddenly there in your fingers, and the more I talk it out, the less I feel like I can just fly and dance, so that's why I don't like to talk that stuff out
3: that much. I think this is really useful for listeners to hear, because many people who don't do this kind of work have the misunderstanding that it's um, manufactured in some way, that there, you know, like as you say from the top down, that there is... I, mean, I I can tell you the only times in my writing life that I've written myself right into a corner uh, or where I've had to throw away hundreds of pages or just put something in a drawer never to come out again has been when I've started with an idea. It's when, I, when I've had a big idea. Um, oh, yeah, of course.
4: That, right. Yeah. Sure, it's like you have to lead. Like I always lead from the way I talk about it is from curiosity and obsession, right? If I'm incredibly curious to the point where I'm obsessed, then I can write about something. But that's the only way that it works. And so if it can be a world, so you could say, oh, there's a world I'm fascinated by. And then you could have the intellectual notion, hey, I think other people might be fascinated by that too. Maybe this is worth my time. But then immediately what has to pull you into it is curiosity and obsession and fascination. Those are the things that have to just grab hold of you and yank you into it so that you
3: you, you, you can't be re- released from it. That reminds me of something that I... Um... Also say to my students is that you know theme uh is just a fancy literary word for obsession. You know, like sh- show me a writer's themes over the course of a lifetime and I can tell you what obsesses that writer. Um and I think th- to go back to from the top down, you know so many of us um you know, were taught literature in a certain way. Some of us were taught it in a very dry way. Uh, in terms of thinking about metaphor, thinking about simile, thinking about foreshadowing, and all the kinds of things that they teach in um, less evolved uh, English literature classes. And the thing about metaphor is that it does spring from the unconscious; it never springs from the conscious mind. So, do do you and David work together in a room, or do you um, do you work separately and then come together? I'm so curious and and frankly envious at the idea of partnership in that way, where um, you have that sounding board.
4: Well, when we're outlining, we're together, and we're writing scenes, we're separate. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, because that intellectual part of it, the part where you're grinding, is much better with another person, because you're able to really throw ideas and challenge each other, and it's like, you know, it, it's it, when it starts getting aflame, it's great, because you both can sort of add kindling on, um, add logs onto the fire, but the... The writing of the, so we'll, we'll outline, a, we'll, we'll talk through a story and put the cards up on the board together. But then, and then one of us will do a first pass alone at, at taking the cards and putting it into an outline. Then the other one will rewrite that, ask questions, the other guy will ask questions and rewrite. Then we have an outline, and then we just split the outline up. Like, I'll take these bunch of scenes, you take these bunch of scenes, and then we write the scenes separately. We put them in one document, and one of us goes through first, rewriting the whole thing, and then the other goes through, and we just go back and forth. And then at the end, we sit together and solve whatever remaining sort of problems there are together. I mean, if you're going to collaborate like this, you have to love the, the way the other person works, and you have to be the kind of person who can celebrate when the other person comes up with a great line, and from the very beginning, right? Because writers can get jealous and petty and miserable, but from one of the things that Dave and I have always had is we love when the other guy comes up with something great. We just—that's mm. just the way we were made, you know. Um, rather than getting annoyed, we get happy. So that's a big part of it, right? If, if David writes a hilarious couplet, I mean, all I want to do is celebrate it and like it. It just makes me—I don't know—it just makes me happy. And he's the same. When I, you know, basically when we are split the document and we're writing, we're just trying to make the other guy laugh and smile. Um, because we've been best friends from kids, you know, so we've been having this dialogue back and forth since then.
3: Brian and David's working relationship points to the same exact thing Brian's talking about here. Just in the way that Haruki Murakami's cats spring from the well of his unconscious, so do our obsessions drive us, whether we're artists or not, and take us to places we couldn't have predicted or dreamt of. The trick, I think, is to trust the journey to give ourselves permission to follow Emerson's gleam of light.
4: I know that it's true in the work, and, and I know that I could go through the movies that David and I made, and you could definitely find the, the, the things that have obsessed us and the reasons. And, and really, you're talking about the questions you've been asking yourself the whole time. And the, those, those questions, of course, exist in any, in any artist's body of work.
3: Right. Exactly. Well, Brian, this has been such a treat. I'm a fan and uh, of both your generosity and your art.
4: Oh, thanks so much. This has been really fun, Danny.
3: I'd like to thank my guest, Brian Koppelman. If you haven't already, check out Billions on Showtime, airing on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And you can find Brian on Twitter at at Brian Koppelman.
0: For
2: more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: To getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations, and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke.